Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Yeah, our kids are at home <laughs> suffering, falling behind, and you guys are renaming schools. Like, we're in San Francisco, we like renaming it all, but this is not the time. Right. American parents are in the middle of a revolt. We're all familiar with the whole COVID schools in person or remote learning debate. And over time, it became clear that there was a partisan break, with Democrats more accepting of remote learning and Republicans advocating a little harder to get kids back in school. But today, I'm in San Francisco, where this fight to reopen schools has not been spearheaded by lifelong Republicans. In fact, it's the brainchild of two Gen X progressive techies, and Republicans are watching their strategy very closely. And so when you say that you had this connection of like, oh, this is someone I want to do something with. So we're not even talking about just the, a romantic interest. You're talking about like, I want to like, you mean, it sounds, it sounds, like, it sounds like you meant like a project. Shiva Raj and Autumn Luyen met on Tinder a couple of years ago. They have five kids between them. They're friendly, worldly, highly educated. And a year ago, as the pandemic dragged on, they really wanted their kids back in school. You know, sometimes politicians go deaf and you have to like stand up on the rooftop and scream, right? And so this was kind of the stand up on the rooftop and scream situation. In one of the most progressive cities in the country, over the last couple of years of the pandemic, parents like these are finding themselves aligned with some of the goals and ideas that are animating conservatives these days. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. And just a few blocks from the iconic Painted Ladies, I'm having dinner with Shiva and Autumn, leaders in the fight to reopen. This fight is progressives against progressives, and it's forcing Democrats to reevaluate some of the big ideas that have energized the party since 2020. But before I dig into the chicken biryani and wine, here's our man in California, Jeremy B. White. He lives in the Bay Area, and he's the author of California Playbook. The situation on the streets has just become intolerable, and it's not, it's not acceptable that, it, that it's gotten like this. Here's what's happening now. Three members of the San Francisco School Board are facing a recall. The election to recall them is coming up soon, early next week. It's been a long time in the making for parents who are unhappy with the board's lack of results when it came to reopening schools last year, and who are puzzled by what the board was doing in the meantime. It really all boils down to uh, the pandemic and frustration over perceived misplaced priorities. San Francisco schools were closed for a long time, longer than a lot of other places in the country. And yet, even as the schools remained closed, parents were desperate to get their kids back in school. You saw the school board spending a lot of time debating issues like renaming schools, um, doing away with the admission system at a prominent San Francisco high school. And the longer that dragged on, the more it really sort of frustrated parents. 
the organizers of this recall, while some sort of professional campaign money has come behind it as it's progressed, the initiators are not political professionals. And I think you saw something similar play out in other parts of California in which you saw parents getting more involved and becoming more aware of what was going on with their school board as suddenly issues of school closures and uh, coronavirus became so prominent. In terms of the national stakes, I think that the last couple of years have really proved the potency of uh, school-related issues in the pandemic as something that can really activate voters. Uh, That's something that is still very much out there um, with, for example, California still mandating uh, masks in schools. There's a a push in the Capitol to um, tighten school vaccine requirements. And I think you're very much seeing this larger issue of schools, vaccines, and coronavirus um, really permeating the midterm elections. In Virginia, for instance, in in the November elections where school board politics suddenly became a a big issue in a a race that was closely watched by uh, national media, it really was a kind of traditionally polarized issue between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, Of course, San Francisco being an overwhelmingly Democratic city, this is an intra-party fight. Um, And I'm curious how other political actors in California and even nationally, if they've weighed in, how the the recall has divided the broader world of of Democrats in the Bay Area uh, and California. In San Francisco, you see Democrats rallying behind this school board recall. Um, The mayor, London Breed, who sort of sparred with the school board and even took them to court over uh, schools being closed, has endorsed it. Um, So has the state senator, Scott Wiener, representing San Francisco, who's very much a progressive on a lot of issues. And uh, remember that we also in California had an attempted recall of the governor last year. Uh, There have been recall attempts qualified or attempted up and down the state um, from school board to county supervisor to the governor. And so I really think that um, even after Gavin Newsom decisively repudiated that recall, I think there's still a real sense of frustration among voters. And I think elected officials are keenly aware of that, even as some of these other recall attempts uh, sort of fizzled out. I think that um, the message of voters being restless and um, disillusioned with their elected officials is very much something that's still out there in the larger landscape. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that there was a kind of recall fever beyond the Gavin Newsom recall. Um, And uh, on this one, which I understand is the first successful one to get on the ballot in San Francisco since uh, apparently the early 80s. But just to uh, follow up on what you said there, that kind of uh, populist backlash with voters seizing on California's kind of weird recall law, that that moment hasn't passed. You're seeing out here uh, other attempts, even if they're, they're not successful. I would say it's receded. I think recall fever was running hottest last year, but it's still very much out there. Uh, You know, there is another recall attempt for the district attorney in Los Angeles. Um, In a few months, uh, the voters in San Francisco are going to vote on whether to recall their district attorney. And so I, I think it's maybe no longer at its sort of peak intensity, but we are still certainly seeing some of those challenges play out. I think people are very much watching not just uh, the outcome of the school board recall, but the outcome of the San Francisco district attorney race, I think, is really going to send a signal 
about what voters are feeling around criminal justice issues. Um, and there are a bunch of races uh, in California in November and indeed um, around the country, I would argue, where that issue is really going to resonate. And so I think a gauge of the voters' mood on that is really going to uh, potentially be a preview of some of those November contests. If I were a political consultant, uh, you know, designing the face of the uh, recall of, of these three education board commissioners, you know, Siva and Autumn would be out of central casting. You know, it's this hate Ashbury uh, couple with uh, kids in, in the public schools who are, have never gotten involved in politics. And, you know, this all of a sudden galvanized them. And they genuinely do seem to have gotten this off the ground with a pretty grassroots uh, parents effort. But since then, a lot of bigger players have come in, big money, um, money well outside of the kind of uh, uh, progressive intra-party world in San Francisco. Could could you just talk a little bit about that and and whether as it got off the ground and other more right-leaning players started to take an interest of it in it? Um, one, just tell us a little bit about who they are and whether that's uh, changed the politics of it all, because the the school board, of course, is pointing to this and saying and, and alleging that this is a right wing conspiracy, that national uh, right wing forces are, are, are behind this. Tell us a little bit about that. You've certainly seen uh, some big money showing up. Uh, There's no doubt that the supporters of this recall have a lot more financial resources than the opponents of it. You've seen various wealthy tech investors. Um, You've seen the real estate industry uh, drop in some money. You have a very prominent player in sort of pro-charter California education politics who's put in hundreds of thousands of dollars, one of the most prominent funders, uh, a guy by the name of Arthur Rock, who um, has played in sort of school board and education races up and down the state for years. And so certainly this may have sort of originated as a parents movement, but a lot of um, big money, including from regular players in the political system, has has come in as this has gone from... um, a a sort of quest to a reality. Autumn and Shiva hosted me at their apartment. Shiva met me on the sidewalk on Haight Street. Hello. Hey there. Hi, sorry to give you away then. Oh, don't worry. I just saw that text, so it's nice. I had texted Kara, but maybe she didn't appreciate it. Yeah, it's too many people on the I know. It's good to see you. Ryan Likewise. Lizard. Nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. This is for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Let's go straight up. I know you guys like brownies, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can always well, we've had a fair amount of brownies over the last year. So we can't be headquarters. That's right. Well, also an apartment, but yeah. <laughs> this room especially is where the, uh, we did a lot of the signature gathering, in fact. Yeah. That campaign... It all started with the Zoom meetings, hours-long, seemingly never-ending Zoom meetings that Shiva Raj and Autumn Luyan found themselves watching in early 2021 to get an idea of when, just maybe, in-person school would start again for their kids. It was mostly on you. <laughs> it was mostly me at that point logging in. The average length was like seven hours or nine hours. And they had a variety of different topics, and usually the opening was the, like the last item on the agenda. Opening of schools was just Correct. buried. 
And the other stuff that they were focused on on was what? They went through the renaming resolution, but there wasn't anything to do with the thing that was important right up front, which is reopening. I mean, they spent two hours discussing whether a gay dad was diverse enough to be on the half-empty parent advisory council. Yeah. They had eight seats open. Um, and they spent two hours talking about him without asking him a single question. This has now become, of course, a famous episode yeah. in this whole saga. Yeah. And the question was whether his background was di- was diverse enough? You know, so we still don't have actually a accurate answer as to why they were so unwilling to accept his uh, candidacy. It was Just back up and explain it again. So there, there's a meeting for to determine the membership of what? Parent Advisory Council, which, so the Parent Advisory Council is about, I, I forget the exact number, but it was half empty at that point, probably still is. So this was an opportunity for, for them to broaden the representation. And I think they were kind of unhappy with the fact that he was white because they felt like that was overrepresented on the, on the Parent Advisory Council. Um, and actually, you know, I was, I was listening into that thing and I was, I was there like logged in through live. that whole... You were watching this live. I was watching this live and, you know, I'm bisexual and a large part of the reason I moved to San Francisco is because, you know, if I, I came out to my kids after I moved here. I'd come out to my friends, etc. But large part of the reason was that. I mean, large part of the reason was to be in a place where you could be a bisexual parent and didn't feel different, right? So for me, listening to it, that is literally a personal slap in the face. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to, and you know, it's difficult to fit in, you know. And there's just this endless drama that just seems to go on in these school board meetings that has nothing to do with the actual job that they have to do, which is to educate our kids. Yeah. And that is a consistent pattern across these meetings. It wasn't just one that was like this. And I was getting involved with doing, you know, organizing some protests and, you know, and I did this have like... Have you ever done that before? Had you ever been to a protest? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, except for the Black Lives Matters one, right? That's, that's really the... F- I mean, the interesting thing is all my life, I've tried to avoid politics, right? In India, you grow up. When you grow up in India, you know, you are taught to avoid politics. Why? Because it's, you know, 56% of the members of parliament in India today have a criminal record. <laughs> it, it is, that is the reality of politics at the ground level, right? I, I grew up in a working class neighborhood. It is not uncommon to people to, to be, you know, slashed because they were getting into a political fight. Has the experience... Um... Has it driven you guys to the right? Has it driven you away from your roots? I mean, you know, the term on the internet is like, you know, are you guys listening to Joe Rogan and, <laughs> and, and Andrew Sullivan and, and, and being red pilled? And like, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, I think that because you see the conversation about this oh, and yeah. a lot of, you know, in a lot of the, these circles. Yeah. What I see is it's not a right left thing. It's a symbolism versus substance thing. I think there are a lot of people who've taken the name progressive and used it to push a lot of symbolic crap that's not going to make a difference in anyone's lives um, just for their own political gain versus doing the hard work to make the actual difference on the ground that takes a long time and you don't know if it's going to work or not, right? It's, it's much less sexy to do the hard work than it is to get your name in the papers for renaming 44 schools. I think it's made us appreciate the value of talking to everybody, you know? And I think, you know, I've been as guilty as anybody else in this country or anywhere else in the world of, you know, like fighting hard for my tribal political group, right? I've done all of those things. I've been on Twitter shouting at the opposition. And I think what this has done is... Sh- it's kind of revealed to us, actually, there's a lot of commonality. It's, you know, we are not as divided as we think we are. We're actually very, very similar. 
Um, and it's re- been really interesting to meet people from across the political spectrum, right? Uh, there's a lot of common ground. Um, and, you know, San Francisco is very divided tribally, right? I mean, there's so many different groups. We have more political clubs per capita than any other city in the country. And every one of them has their own individual agenda. So, you know, like 86% Democratic, it still doesn't mean that everybody's, you know, like aligned, not at all, to the contrary. What's the phrase? The narcissism of small differences. It, it, yeah. that's, that's like a perfect summary of what's happening here. So speaking about ideology, the, this movement has attracted a lot of money now from the right. And I know the, the main argument from the 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 three people you're trying to recall has been this is just a right wing um outside San Francisco uh movement, right? That's what they that's how they wanna um brand you guys. But it is true that you have some very wealthy people coming in, uh people associated with conservative causes spending money on the race now. And it's also true that I think there are a lot of people um, that are not your natural political allies nationally that are kind of who love to make fun of San Francisco mm. and love to make fun of, um, you know, left wing excess in San Francisco <laughs> yes. and who are really going to cheer right. if you guys are successful. They're going to cheer uh, in any case. But, but I want to just politically as as. I'm sure it's not politically beneficial for you to, you know, uh, to be seen as a tool of like national Republicans or the conservative movement. So what is what has it been like dealing with allies who may not be uh, politically um, the best face of this? So I think there's a couple different things here. One thing is I I find it really interesting that they're claiming that our support is from outside San Francisco because actually 83% of our contributors are from within San Francisco. If you look at the opposition contributors camp- Contributors to the- your specific to, to to everyone included, right? This is for our campaign, right? Our our right. committee. We've had right. nearly two thousand donors. Eighty three percent of them are from San Francisco. If you look at these three commissioners when they ran for office, um, none of them came even close to eighty three percent of their support coming from San Francisco. And if you look at the opposition campaigns, they're getting roughly half their money Correct. outside of San Francisco, as compared to our eighty three percent. So, is this going to succeed? Oh yeah. Yeah. You're confident. Oh yeah, yeah, no doubt. What is the poll? What is your? Do you, do you guys poll? Do you spend money on? We polling? haven't polled. We haven't spent money on polling at all. But we've heard we had a third party poll in May last year, of course, come out, and then recently we heard like some of the other assembly candidates who are compete. You know, they've done some polling, so we heard through the grapevine. Well, this is how I know you're not uh, professional. <laughs> Political operatives, because you don't have any polling. You don't have any current polling. No. And, you know, but we did a lot of texting, 40, 50,000. We had like responses. So we can tell from that very strong support for stronger than the poll that we we had last year. Is there any final push in these final days to get voters out in terms of like media buys, TV advertising, anything of like a kind of, you know, scale, anything that's that kind of that scale? So there's a second committee that's been doing much more of the traditional media by you know media campaigns. All the people who know how to run political campaigns uh, 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 are over there. You know, and you know they've been doing well in terms of just running campaign, you know, TV ads across different. They look super professional. I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so we I think but the last week we're just focusing on uh, Chinese American uh, language. So far from what we can tell, Chinese American turnout is 50 percent higher than general population. Wow. So this is so, really galvanized, the Chinese. American. It is really galvanized. It's and, usually lower. 
Yeah, it is usually Thai. I mean, Asian Americans just don't get involved in politics very much. Right? Yeah, immigrants like you know you try to avoid getting involved in politics. I'm the crazy exception, I guess. But you know, actually, <laughs> to be fair, I mean, since we started this, there have been you know Chinese Americans especially have been central to this campaign right from day one. At the same time, in February, there are two big things are happening. The renaming of schools issue is is chugging along, and you guys are observing this, and it sounds like the, this is a lot of frustration about. Right prioritizing. Yeah. So here's how I explain it to people who don't have kids. Yeah. Imagine you're in San Francisco, there's been an earthquake. You're out on the sidewalk in a tent because you're not sure if your home is safe to go out and go back to. And you're cooking your meals on the on the sidewalk. You're trying to do all your normal things. You've been there for months. Finally, your elected leaders show up and you're like, thank God, here's some help. And they, they say, we are here to help. We're going to change the street signs for you. And then they go away. Right. And you're like, but but we needed help with this. At this point, is there a circle of parents and other people, you know, a network that you're sort of is forming yeah. where you're like, you know, I'm not, it's not just me at home on the Zoom, but there's a, a larger outcry. Like, how is it, how is it building at that point? So there was quite a few groups actually that start up, especially in the Jan Feb period, which is when most of us who were kind of like looking forward to the school's reopening suddenly were kind of faced with the reality that they may not. This whole academic year. You know, I remember doing this analysis of like school reopening status across the country. And man, I, I finished that late at night. I was crying. You were crying? I was crying. Because I was. Just to set the scene here, you're, you're doing, you're on your computer late at night here at this. In this very kitchen booth. Right? Pulling together data from all over the place. So about- I was looking on the websites of all of the different school districts. I was reading news reports to see what their reopening plans was for all the top 25 school districts across the country. Yeah. It just kind of like that one chart, like just basically brought home to me how far behind we had become. It really brought you to tears? It did. It generally felt like our elected leadership was completely letting us down. It generally felt like they didn't care about the one thing they should actually care about, which is our kids. This this same period, they changed the admissions policy at Lowell. Lowell. So how did that uh, galvanize people or how did that affect the debate? You have a lot of Chinese families in this city who come here. I just with... explain for people who don't understand that. Lowell okay. is very well-known. Yeah, uh, Lowell is um, a very well-known, very well-regarded high school in the city. It's um, it's has had merit-based admissions, and it's really for kids who want to kind of like drink from the fire hose academically. It's designed to provide that kind of academic experience so you can go on and excel in, in college. And Very the, competitive very competitive. There's an exam to get in. Now, it's not just an exam to get in. There are also there were also um, kind of set asides for for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds to um, so that they had a path to Lowell as well. But Lowell has been a place where immigrant families could come to the city with nothing. They often live in a single room apartment, the entire family in one room. Um, they don't have any money. They don't have any connections. All they can do is work hard, right? And that has been their kid's path to a better life. So, you know, they spend their entire childhoods working and working and working so they can pass this exam and go to Lowell and have a good life. But the school board's concern was that Lowell's not as diverse as the other schools. Yeah, so, so that, is, that is what they said. Um, and there are, there are fewer Black and Latino students than the district's population as a whole. That's absolutely true. And that's definitely, I think everyone in San Francisco would like to see that change. It's a question of how you do it, right? My big concern with the lottery system 
is that if you admit kids who aren't qualified, who can't, who can't do the work, not because they're not smart, but because they just haven't had the academic preparation, you end up either having to dumb down the standards so it's like every other school, or they end up transferring out. Um, and they feel bad about themselves afterwards, right? If nobody's checking that they can clear the bar so they can actually do the work, then that doesn't serve anyone. When you were watching this, what did you think was driving these decisions? Like when, if you were to be as empathetic as you could or as sympathetic <laughs> about, okay, I'm, I'm plugging into this issue to this, this murky world right. of school board politics for the, for, the, for the first time. These people all got elected. They, can't, you know, they have some support in the community. They're obviously um, driven by something. Mm-hmm. What what was that? What what's your your sort of best case for what they were tr- thinking during think, this period? I think they were really focused on racial justice and wanting to be sure that people, especially Latino and Black people, got a fair shake in a school district. They think about Lowell as a resource that people are not giving equal access to, and we think of it as something that you have to be that without the proper preparation, we could give you access to it, but it's not going to do you any good because you just don't have the tools to take advantage of it. But I, I think that they're really focused on kind of the symbols of inequity, you know, changing the names above the door, you know, changing the merit-based system. You know, they, they see those things as tools of a system that has been deeply, deeply unfair to a lot of people in our society. And they want it fixed, and they're, you know, they are willing to take any amount of heat in order to get that fixed. I saw it a little differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've I've grown up in India. I've seen this. I've seen this drama play out multiple times, right? You know, in India, we've been through a decolonization process, and that's right. You know, we have all these British names for our streets, for our public places, for all of that, right? And it is a good thing to be able to, you know, kick the British out fully and, you know, truly, <laughs> right? So, so you saw, I mean, that, just explain what that decolonization process was like for you growing up in India. I mean, you're saying it's straight names. It's, yeah. you know, for example, the main drag in Chennai was called Mount Road, which was named after Mountbatten, who was the last, um, you know, viceroy of the British Empire, you know, the first Ghana general. And, you know, Mountbatten was a member of the royal family and he's, he's famous for other reasons too. But... But yeah, I mean, it was changed to Anna Salai, which was basically one of the first uh, post-independence, well, not the first, but the second or third chief ministers of the state, right? And so there was a lot of this stuff going on where you're trying to, you know, take away the British names, et cetera, you know, statues, Very similar. et cetera. Very similar, because that's just easy to do. it, And that's exactly what the school board is doing here. That's exactly what they were doing. They didn't want to do the hard work for actually fixing educational outcomes for our kids which is deeply flawed. San Francisco is one of the highest in California, one of the highest disparities in educational outcome for white and Asian kids versus black and Latino kids. And they didn't want to fix any of that. They didn't want to tackle those hard problems. So they were focused on easy things like renaming schools because they could do that and they could get onto the next job, which is the, you know, the board of supervisors or the next mayor, which is the, the school board has been a stepping stone for so many people in the, in the city. Did you, so during this, as, as you're getting very passionate about this, the way that you're, you're speaking right now, did you ever have any opportunities to sort of like just make the kind of case that you just made now in front of that group? Or are they just in a bubble that seems that you have no access to? Right. It didn't seem like it would make a difference because I was listening to parents like crying, right? I mean, that February 9th meeting, there were 200 parents waiting to talk 
at the stroke of midnight and we got 30 minutes to talk and obviously not all 200 got to speak. That was when they talked about reopening. That was like the last item on the agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was obvious that, you know, we've tried the advocacy, we've tried doing the press, we tried going out and protesting, there are parents calling in and crying, didn't make any difference. The only thing that made any change at all was when this city sued them for not having a plan to open the schools. And then we saw a little bit of movement and we're like, so there are things that can be done to move this board a little bit. Is there anything else we can try? Because the mayor is suddenly very frustrated with this board. She was incredibly frustrated with them. Maybe stop here and tell us a little bit about the mayor and when um, she became an ally on this issue and what do you think her political reasons for that were, whether they were ideological or cynical or whatever, just responsive. Right. I think, so on, you know, like, I haven't really looked at the mayor's performance in other areas, right? I mean, beyond kind of like being aware of... She's a polarizing history. figure in the city? I, I get the sense talking I mean, to people? San Francisco politics is really polarizing. Like, we are, <laughs> no, it's just so, so insane. I mean, we're supposed to be 86% Democratic. Man, you would not know that from looking at the politics of the city. But so with the mayor, for example, in an education perspective, what we saw was that, you know, she seemed like really, really into, eager to kind of help. She appreciated that kids were falling behind, right? And it's the disadvantaged kids who are falling behind. And she's, you know, our first black female mayor. She grew up right? in the project. She, she went to public schools here. Right. So she, you know, she's, she's connected to the community and she's hearing from them saying, you know, kids are struggling. She's hearing that loud and clear from them. So when do you learn that there's, this, there's such a thing as a recall? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you could actually do this. Was it because of the Gavin Newsom situation? Is it like when do you think, get this idea? I think we'd been going like, what it, could we possibly do to put pressure on the school board? What would they actually listen to? And we're like, maybe if we made it personal, right? And we we saw that the San Ramon School District had started a recall because the school personal didn't in terms of calling them out more. In terms of calling or, them out or, more, or the yeah. recall specifically. That, it, that they needed more pressure, that yeah. just like calling into meetings and going and protest didn't seem to make a difference. You know, sometimes politicians go deaf and you have to like stand up on the rooftop and scream, right? And so this is kind of the stand up on the rooftop and scream situation. Yeah, yeah. So we're like, are there any things left that we haven't tried yet? And then we're like, well, this district over here, they started a recall campaign. Two weeks later, all the kids are back in school. So we were like... And well, it didn't actually lead to the recall. They just the, just the threat of it. Just the threat of it. I think they, they they started collecting yeah, they signatures. Filed the paperwork or something, and two weeks later, twenty three thousand kids, first school district in the Bay Area to bring kids back. They were supposed to bring kids back in Jan, and they pushed it back, and they were not. It wasn't clear when they would, and so someone in the community kind of moved and said, "Like, all right, this seems like a good idea." So we're like, someone should do a recall, and then two weeks later, the kids will be back in school. It'll be great. Yeah. And then every time we had a Zoom call, at the end of the call, they're like, well, we think you guys should do it. Pretty much everybody thought it was impossible. San Francisco politics is described as a knife fight in a phone booth. If you go into politics in San Francisco, if you have a business, you expect to lose it. If you have a reputation, you expect it to be shredded, right? It's it's that bad, <laughs> well, right? What made it okay for you guys to do that? I mean, you have kids, yeah. you have, you know... I mean, I think for us, we saw that the situation... You're situ suddenly national public figures. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's not my favorite thing, <laughs> but I think for us, we saw our kids suffering and we said, this is, this is a fight that has to happen and somebody has to lead it. And, you know, in life, sometimes you find something that you're like, this is the fight I want to have in my life. This is something that's so important to do that I'm going to do it even if it fails. I'm going to do it even if, you know, I, I work on it my entire life long. I never get anywhere because it's something that's so important to be done that, um, that I don't mind spending my whole life on it, even if I don't make any progress. But why not just wait till the next election? Why a recall? 
it's just too long in a kid's life. I mean, two years at that point, I mean, one year from this point, it's just too long in a kid's life, right? Yeah, I mean, and let me give a concrete example of that. If you're not reading well at the end of third grade, your chances of dropping out of school skyrocket. They fall farther and farther and farther behind. What have you learned about the conversation among progressives, among Democrats, about race in America right now um, that you think it's important that a national audience kind of understand? Um, Because you've dealt with, in microcosm here, um, a lot of the the fraught issues that um, are dominating national politics, um, both within the Democratic Party, within the sort of left of center world and, you know, and, and, between the, and between the parties. I think for me, still, like, the most, like, vivid uh, conversation I ever had was I did a lot of my signature gathering at Fillmore Farmer's Market. So Fillmore Farmer's Market is a very mixed uh, community, right? There's, there's Chinese Americans who are first generation who barely speak English and you know, there's, uh, of course, white people, Latino, um, black people, etc. It's a huge black, a center of black uh, presence in San Francisco historically. Now it's not the case anymore. But uh, so I remember meeting this, you know, this black parent who signed the petition. And, and, you know, and she and she was talking to me and saying, you know, why is it that just because I'm poor, that I don't get access to the same quality of life, the same standard of living that everybody else in, in San Francisco has access to. Why is it on, you know, my kids don't get an education? Why is it on my streets that are needles? Why is it that I have to put up with the crime? Why do I have to put up with the streets that are dirty and filthy? Don't I deserve the same quality of life that everyone in the city has access to? These debates are much more fractious than they are at the, at the human level, mm. at the street level. At the street level, people actually have a much more common interest and desire in pretty much the same thing. For people who are not in San, in the Bay Area or in California listening to this, and what's going to happen Tuesday if, if you are successful, if this recall is, is successful, there'll be a lot of people looking for national implications about you know what this means. Um, and usually we're all wrong about these national issues, <laughs> <laughs> these local issues. But you know, there, there's there's always a germ of of of, of truth to to some of these. Uh, you know, big takeaways about things that are ha- happening locally and, and what they mean for for politics writ large. Assuming you're successful, what is your big uh, takeaway? What are the what are the national implications? I think it means that you know whatever whatever else you need to do, you need to pay attention to um, making sure like the actual work of your job is done. So you may, you know, you that want, seems like a very, that doesn't seem like a political lesson. That just seems like, a, I know it's so boring, right? We, we joke that we have the most boring revolution ever, right? It's yeah. all about good governance, right? Like if you're like, if you want to like rename 44 schools, that's great, but please make sure the kids inside those walls can read. If you want, you know, if you want to like change the admission system to bring in more people of color, um, then that's great, but you know, do it in a way that brings the community together rather than dividing us. I think one interesting thing is like San Francisco is known as a very, very divided city politically, even though we're all technically on the same side. Yeah. And I would say if we can if we can bring together everyone on this issue, from Republicans to Bernie Kratz, and even Green Party members, right? Everyone can agree that kids deserve a good education. There are some things that, as divided as we think they are, we are, we can still agree on. And I think we, that's somewhere we can build from. 
Shiva and Autumn were 100% confident that this recall is going to be successful, that all three commissioners are going to be recalled, even though one of them has tried to separate himself from the more unpopular actions of the other two. Do you um, and do most political observers in California share that view? I think the prevailing assumption out there right now is that these school board members are going to be recalled. I think when folks look at uh, the money that's gotten behind this, when they see the various prominent uh, political players who have backed it, you have the local newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicles editorial board coming out in favor of this recall. I think that the prevailing assumption in the same way that people assume the Republicans are going to win back the House, I think people assume that these school board members are going to be recalled. I didn't talk to them much about the district attorney uh, recall, but could you just tell us a little bit about the um, the issue of of crime and how the mayor has addressed that and what's behind this uh, next recall attempt and if it sort of intersects with any of the issues that uh, voters are going to be responding to on t- on Tuesday with the school board recall. I think you are seeing this sort of democratic recalibration on crime playing out all over the state. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass, running for mayor of L.A., um, seen by a lot of folks as the front runner, came out with a plan to hire a lot more police officers, um, a long way from defund the police. Fund the police Um, is the new uh, defund the police. Um, You know, you've seen the mayor of Oakland call for more resources. You've seen um, the governor, Gavin Newsom, calling for more uh, resources in the budget to fight organized retail theft. You had uh, the mayor in San Francisco, London Breed, give a a very fiery speech in which she talked about the reign of criminals who are destroying the city. Um, California has very aggressively embraced criminal justice reform in the last decade or so. Um, At the ballot box, in terms of the laws coming out of uh, the state legislature to reduce penalties and incarceration, in terms of this sort of new wave of progressive district attorneys who have won election. And I don't think the uh, sort of elected Democratic class is is abandoning those reforms, but we are certainly seeing leaning into that sort of tougher on crime rhetoric um, around the state. And I think people very clearly perceive that violent crime is on the rise and that this is something that is very much on the minds of voters. In terms of how this overlaps with the school board recall, I would just note that it's some similar folks um, who are uh, involved in the school board recall and are involved in the district attorney recall, people who tend to uh, be giving a lot of money uh, at a time. Um, So some sort of wealthy funders who are really invested in both of these races as a sort of quality of life uh, in San Francisco issue. Tell us a little bit about Mayor London Breed. She's backing the recall and the targets of the recall say, well, this is a power grab by the mayor because she's going to be the one appointing replacements if the three commissioners are recalled. Um, She seems like a pretty savvy politician. I've noticed uh, she can be a little bit of a a polarizing figure in San Francisco politics. Uh, And she's recently received a lot of national attention um, because of her position on on some of the um, crime that San Francisco has seen. Tell us a little bit about Mayor London Breed and the political calculation uh, she's making here. Keeping in mind that the political center in San Francisco is probably to the left of where it is in most places in America, 
Uh, I think London Breed uh, tries to occupy that role in the center as the mayor, uh, similarly to the way that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom did when he was mayor of San Francisco, where um, I think she's seen as a little more of the centrist sort of business aligned mayor, which is not to say she's not a, a Democrat uh, and a liberal. I think by by pretty much any definition she is. But in the same way that you have seen the mayor talking about crime and the need to do something about it, even before she got behind this recall last year when schools were still closed, um, she laid down a major marker by uh, suing to get those schools open along with uh, the city attorney. So she is certainly um, somebody who has channeled the frustration with how the schools issue has played out. In terms of her uh, control over what the school board looks like post-recall, there are various power struggles between the mayor and um, other institutions. There's also a whole other fight with the board of supervisors over uh, an effort that would expand her powers or reduce her powers. And so um, San Francisco politics is always a blood sport. There's always (laughs) lots of sharp elbows being thrown. Um, And so I don't think it's unusual for there to be power struggles between the mayor and, and various other players. But uh, she is certainly on uh, schools and crime, which are two issues that um, even in liberal San Francisco have really galvanized voters. I think she's charted a course of uh, trying to reflect those frustrations. So this may not be an issue in San Francisco um, where Democrats obviously uh, can can sleep easy. The Republican Party is is basically dead here. But does this recall effort and the backlash on school decisions during the pandemic give you the impression that Democrats have anything to worry about um, in terms of owning the issue of education in a way that they once did? I mean, in Virginia, what, what we saw is, you know, for a long, long time now, education and Democrats have always had the polling advantage on, on education. And in Virginia, that wasn't the case. Youngkin uh, um he stole that issue from the Democrats. And, you know, I remember talking to his strategists after the campaign. Um, that was their intention from day one. They saw that issue as like ripe for, for, for the taking and they took it. In California, with the midterms coming up, do you see that as a possibility as well? I think in California, there is a more shallow pool of races where Republicans have a real shot at being competitive. Um I think the governor, after surviving that recall, is overwhelmingly likely to be reelected. I don't suspect we're going to see a Glenn Youngkin type beating him, um, particularly after uh, frustration over schools was a big motivating factor for qualifying that recall and the governor prevailed nevertheless. Democrats in the state legislature have a um, overwhelming enough majority in the way the new districts are drawn. Uh, they're, they're probably in the driver's seat to retain that, that two-thirds supermajority. There are a handful of competitive congressional races, though. And, of course, a member of Congress doesn't have much control over um, what happens in schools. That's really a, a school board decision, a, more of a state even decision than a federal one. But to the extent I think that there is still frustration out there um, among parents who feel like two years into this pandemic, uh, they're still strapping masks on their kids and sending them off to school. I think that is something that affects the broader mood out there. There was some polling out recently that showed on a variety of issues, whether it's how voters see the overall trajectory of the state 
whether voters think uh, the worst of the pandemic is behind us or still ahead. There are a lot of indicators that California voters are feeling pretty pessimistic right now on a variety of fronts. A lot of that is this sort of endless grind of the pandemic. And so I think if you're just thinking about the larger overall mood among the electorate, I think there are certainly some warning signs there for incumbents, which in California is mostly Democrats. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Carlos Prieto. Jenny Ament is our senior producer. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to Mickey Capper, who recorded my conversation at Shiva and Autumn's place. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. Listener.